All right, so I'm going to tell you, this church is... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you guys are supposedly introverted church, but when we give you a chance to throw someone off the path, you're all like, don't listen to her. You're like psycho. It's unbelievable. I love this. All right. A whole new side to Elmer CRC. I love it. So, all right, let's pray, and we're going to try to dig into God's Word this morning. Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, we know that uh, there's a frail human preacher up here who's flawed and broken, but Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit can translate the words that come out of this vessel, and they can, and they can turn into your words, Lord. So I pray this morning your Spirit would turn these words into your words, and that people would hear a word from you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So about seven years ago, um, I got the chance to start my first ever Explore God group at my house. Um, me and two Christian friends banded together, and we made a list of about 12 names of guys from our neighborhood that did not know Jesus, did not know anything about this Jesus stuff, and we invited them to come over and have a conversation with us about God. Um, eight of the 12 showed up, and the conversation went on for two and a half years in our, in our living room. It was pretty profound, actually. It was one of the most profound ministry moments of my life, I'm going to tell you. Better than hanging out in church, by far, with these guys exploring their wonderings about God and where they found themselves in this continuum of what it means to believe and all this spiritual stuff. So for one year, we would ask them questions and we tried to introduce the Bible into the conversation, but for one year, they would not read the Bible. They refused. They had a fit about it. Every time we brought it up, they said, no, we're not reading the Bible. We're here to talk about our questions. We're not here to read the Bible. And so finally, I said, okay, uh, that's fine. You guys mind if I send you some quotes on the email every week just to kind of give you thinking some things? And they said, sure, that's great. So I sent them George Bernard Shaw. I sent them Mahatma Gandhi. I sent them C.S. Lewis. And I sent them John the Apostle, which, of course, is the book of John. And, I, and they came in saying, okay, this is good. We like this. And the, one of the first verses I sent them was this verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the week we showed up with this verse, they came in with this verse in hand, and man, it was an hour-long argument. They were beside themselves. How can Jesus be so exclusive? I mean, what is wrong with this Jesus guy? Isn't he trying to include people and get him into the kingdom? And look at this. He makes this exclusive claim that he's the only way. What about all the other world's religions? I mean, they don't lead to God? I mean, good, is, good Muslims can't find their way to God, or good Hindus, or all these people? Like, what's the deal with this Jesus guy? Now, that night, it, it sort of reinforced my mind how unpopular it is today in our world to say that there's truth for all people in all times in all places. When you make that statement, you're immediately considered to be intolerant, bigoted, and opinionated. Too opinionated, right? It's popular today to sort of say, let's just be tolerant. Everyone can decide whatever they want to believe. It's okay. You decide whatever you want to believe, it's good. You're allowed to do that. But here's the thing. As I've been kind of going around doing this Explore God thing, I've been talking to people, and one thing I find that's universally agreed upon, seriously, one truth that's true for all people, all times, all places, that, I, that everyone will agree with me on, is that the world is just not the way it's supposed to be. Seriously. When I ask people this question, everyone will tell me all the ways the world has gone wrong. You just have to watch the news. And it's just like one negative story after another. The world is a total mess. Right? And people seem to respond to this by saying, well, there's got to be a better world. There's got to be a better life. There's got to be a happier existence out there. Or at least there used to be, or there's got to be one coming. And people are all looking 
for this happier, better existence, this better world. This is true, right? I think the root of all religion is this search for a better world or for a world that used to be or whatever. People are searching for it. They're trying to find it. And so they get very religious and they do all kinds of things. And everyone's religion, if you think about it, is after this same thing, a world that's in better, more happy, more put together kind of place. Now, if you're, an is, if you're a Muslim, if you're an Islam, you believe heaven is a place where you go and you drink intoxicating drinks and you uh, get some air conditioning, <laughs> seriously, and uh, you get to do whatever you want and you get a lot of beautiful women. I don't know, women, what you're going to do with that, but, you know, for us guys, I guess that's a pretty good, pretty good gig. Um, if you're a Buddhist, your goal is to get out of this constant cycle of birth and rebirth, birth and rebirth, coming back as something else each time. Because as a Buddhist, you believe what went wrong is your soul is living in this blissful state of, of beauty and amazing stuff, and then all of a sudden you got trapped in this physical body, Right, And now you just keep being trapped here. And so your goal is to kind of be freed from this and become nirvana, released from all this stuff. If you're a good Hindu, you pursue righteousness, which leads to wealth. Wealth, which leads to sensuality. Once you start practicing sensuality, you realize, oh man, this is messed up. And you start seeking your way out of this mess. Right? Religion. Now here's the thing. As I go through these religions... Here's the key common denominator in all these religious answers to what it means to make the world a better place. It's all about you working hard to be better. If you can just be better people, if you can just be a better person, if you can just be more good, then you will be able to find this blissful state of existence. You just have to do it. We all just have to do it together. Just work on it, right? Like our maze runner before there's hundreds of religions calling out to people, this is the way, this is the way, this is the way, this is the way. People are just like, oh my goodness, they're overwhelmed. How in the world do we find the way to a better world that we're after? Is there a way? Now, it'd be easy to sit here and say, well, we're here to pick on these other religions, but I'm not. There's a lot of beauty in how people have tried to pursue this better way. I mean, I was in an airport, an O'Hare airport, coming home from a trip, I saw a Muslim man behind a partition on his prayer mat with his face on the ground praying east toward Mecca. I thought to myself, wait a minute, what Christian traveling business person would bring their prayer mat, pull it out of their briefcase, lay it down behind this partition in the middle of O'Hare Prayer and pray like this? It's unbelievable. And then remember the Chinese Olympics a few years ago in Beijing Olympics? And they had that opening ceremony with all those boxes going. It was perfectly synchronized, and I thought it had to be a machine. And then they revealed that these were all people under the boxes. As I looked into that further, it was all because of the meditation they do together and how they learn to move in synch perfect synchronization together. And there's beauty in this stuff, right? It's like people are trying to make the world a better place. There's beauty. So this morning, the, the accusation about Christianity is, well, it's so exclusive. This Jesus guy, what was he thinking? Making these exclusive claims. What was he after? Well, what if we twisted the question? What if we asked it this way? Why do you think Christianity is so exclusive? Is there a reason? Was Jesus actually trying to solve the world's problem by helping us find a better way? Maybe Jesus knew the way to some place that no one else knew the way to, and he was simply making an offer 
to humanity. Rather than trying to exclude people, he was saying, look, I know the way, follow me. Let's just surmise that, okay? So now I'm going to try to take you through some logic here, and we'll see if you can follow along. I, I don't know. We'll see if I can explain it well. So it all begins back in the beginning of time, right? God creates mankind, Adam and Eve, they're created, and they get three kinds of life. They get biology, right? So here I am, i got a body, it's pumping blood, and I'm alive biologically, and I can go to the doctor and get fixed this way, right? They're also alive psychologically. They have a mind, they have emotions, they have a personality, they have a will, okay? And so we know that people are psychologically alive, and everyone's got different personalities, and they're going around that way. And then third kind of life is breathed into them by God. It's called Zoe in the Bible. It's the spiritual eternal life that comes only from God. Only humans get this life breathed into them at creation. No other part of creation gets this life. This is the life that connects humans distinctly and directly with their God. Allows them to walk with him in the garden each and every day, hand in hand. Okay? This is life that's really life. If you're really alive, you're alive biologically, psychologically, and spiritually. You can be walking around the earth today, be alive biologically and psychologically, but spiritually not alive. Kind of crazy, right? Now, we know what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve, you know, the the enemy of God moved in, and he started to lie to them. That's what he said. You will certainly not die if you eat from this tree, the serpent said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, folks, when Adam and Eve made this choice, the Zoe part of them died. They were biologically alive. They were psychologically alive, but their connection with God was broken. Was broken. And look at the consequence. The next verse, Genesis 3. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove him out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. No longer was there a free way to God now it was work to toil by the toil of your hands, return to the dust of the earth. I mean, biologically, now we're decaying. We're all going to die. Psychologically, there's a multi-million dollar industry of people going to counselors to get their emotions and minds and everything working. It's all messed up. And spiritually speaking, we're dead. We can't connect to God like we used to connect to God. So basically, the source of religion is this deep hunger inside to be reconnected to our God. This deep hunger to get the death that's inside of us to be healed and come to life again. Make sense? Okay, now, most religions try to do this by telling you to be good. True? I mean, in Islam, if your kids memorize the Quran, you automatically get to go to heaven. Seriously. So if you get your kids to memorize the Bible, I guess in the way of thinking, you'd go to heaven, Right? It's crazy. So, so there's all these different ways you can become good to do this. Now, um, if you think about it, most humans underestimate or minimize our own brokenness. True? Yeah, we think we're pretty good, don't we? I mean, you look in the mirror in the morning, oh, you're a pretty darn good guy. That's what I say to myself every morning. God, you're a pretty good guy, Klein. Just to remind myself, right? We minimize it. We, we think we're better. And the way we do this is we kind of make 
comparisons with people. So we kind of have our little scale, and we try to pick people out to compare ourselves to that are a little worse than us. True? So it looks kind of like this. Watch. Got a little scale in our mind, worst to best, right? And if we can just get to be, so one of the ways is, you know, if we can just be better, if we can just be better, then the world will be better. So let's just play around with this a little bit. Let's say we put Billy Graham on the scale. You guys with me? So we put Billy Graham up there. I mean, Billy Graham, even though he's died, it's still just, wow, what a guy, right? I mean, who would put him on the worst side of the scale? Billy Graham clearly goes on the best side of the scale. Now, we also have a pastor here, Pastor Greg DeMay. Right? So we put Pastor Greg up there on the scale. You know, now, now the, <laughs> the thing is, the thing is, you know, maybe he's not Billy Graham, but I mean, this guy's an amazing guy. He plays the piano like, like Elton John. He, well, maybe not like Elton John. That's probably not good. Um, and, and he, you know, he's, he's gentle. He's loving. It's amazing. The guy's amazing. He's working for the kingdom. So we put him up there by Billy Graham, right? It's pretty obvious, but maybe not quite all the way there. Now, it's, it's also easy to find people that are really bad. Larry Nassar, right? You know this name? He abused the gymnasts, uh, right? The doctor. This guy is the worst of the worst, right? Terrible. I mean, we, we should put him probably off the scale. So terrible. Now, it's pretty cool because if you can get somewhere between these guys, you're doing pretty well. True? But then there's always the mixed bag of people out there, right? What about Oprah Winfrey? What do you do with her? Yeah, she's, I mean, she's philanthropic, right? She gives away a lot of money. She gives her favorite things away. She makes books real famous, but she's kind of a mixed bag, don't you think? So we're going to put Oprah kind of not as far as Greg, clearly, right? <laughs> Definitely down a little bit on the scale from the Demaster, okay? They, you know, the, the far right is the really holy guys, and then there's Oprah, right? So now we could also throw some other ones in, like, okay, you're like, today's Super Bowl Sunday, so Bill Belichick, you know this guy, right? Super successful football coach, maybe the best of all times, but man, is he grumpy. You ever seen this guy at press conferences? He's just grumping at everybody. So I put Bill probably, you know, maybe left of Oprah down there somewhere. Now here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you start talking about religion this way, how do you know when you're good enough? How do you know when you've done enough good stuff to erase the negative stuff inside you? How do you know when you've made it far enough up the scale? Seriously. And where would you put yourself? If you had to put yourself in the scale, where would you put yourself? And would you put yourself in a spot where you go, okay, if I could just get past DeMay or get near him, I could probably be more, you know, I don't know, heavenly. Really? You just have to go through the Ten Commandments, don't you? Have you ever had any other gods before God? Have you ever put any, anything in place of God in your life? Have you ever misused his name? Maybe just once, a little slip? Have you always honored the Sabbath day? Kept it holy, like this is a place you come every week to church and you're just always just focused on resting and being focused on the Lord? I mean, have you honored your parents? Have you stolen anything? Have you, I don't know, coveted your neighbor's stuff or said some things about your neighbor that you really regret? Of course, you haven't committed adultery, right? I mean, that's one that's pretty good. But you probably have thought about someone in a way that's not appropriate. So you've really done that too. And then, oh, but at least I haven't killed anybody. But you've probably said some things about people or write to those people that have probably killed them inside. We're not good. There's not one of us in this room 
That's good, or will we ever be good enough? We're not going to make it because the myth is that if you are, can get good enough, you're going to make it. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Death. The wages of sin is this connection with God is broken. Look what Ephesians says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Deserving of wrath. Think about that. So you ever get fed up with your kids who are just acting up and acting up and acting up? Yeah, and what do you do? You finally just want to pop them, right? Well, God's up in heaven. He's going, man, these people deserve wrath. They don't deserve love. So this deep ache here that's going on in humanity for a better place is all comes together in kind of looking at the rules of the universe. So think about this with me. When God set the universe up, he created it in a way that was consistent with who he was, who he is, who he will be, right? So he is... Full of justice, full of righteousness, full of holiness, full of purity, full of glory on one side. On the other side, he's full of love, full of grace, full of mercy, full of compassion, full of kindness on this side. So how does this God, who's full of all these things, make a world that's going to work in this way, right? So think about this with me. have you ever wondered why he put a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden? I mean, what a dumb idea. Think about it. I mean, if you want to have a perfect world that's going to work out for everybody, why don't you just put a garden together, put Adam and Eve in the garden, put a wall around the thing, and keep all the evil stuff out of there? I mean, you're God for crying out loud. Why don't you put a tree in the middle of it? And said, don't eat from the tree. If someone told me not to eat from the tree, I want to eat from the tree. How about you? Well, think about it. God didn't want robots God wanted humans made in his image. So for people to have, uh, be humans made in his image, they had to have a choice. God wanted to see if they were going to turn to him, right? Turn to him to get their needs met, to trust him, to have him uh, pour into them in a certain way, right? And so God put this tree there, and of course Adam and Eve chose death and their own way instead of life. Now how should God respond to this? Well, if you're God... You're just, you're righteous, you're holy, you're good. So you got to punish it, right? You're angry. you got to go in there and zap them. But if you go in there and zap them, now you've ignored your loving, kind, right, merciful, gracious side. But then let's say if you're God, you just walk in, hey, Adam and Eve, no big deal, it's okay. You had a little fruit, it's okay, no big deal. I didn't really mean it, it's fine. Now you're ignoring your just, righteous, right, holy side. I love how C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia paints this picture out, the complicated matter that we have, that God faces. In Chronicles of Narnia, a line which in the wardrobe, C.S. Lewis tells the story of a white witch who enslaves the kingdom of Narnia with her perpetual winter. People are being frozen, they're being made into stone, and she knows the ancient prophecy says that when, a, when four humans reign on the throne of Ker Paravel, the, the curse will be broken. So when the four humans show up in her land, she seduces Edmund with Turkish delight and convinces him to to betray his brother and sisters. 
and he's captured by the white witch and called off and she's going to kill him to keep the prophecy from coming true. But then Aslan's creatures run in and save Edmund from her hands and rescue him. But then Aslan has to go have a private meeting with the white witch. And the white witch needs to remind Aslan of the deep magic the emperor of the sea had put in place long ago. Look what she says. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery I have a right to kill. And so that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. Unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. So it's interesting. The enemy of God has God in a pickle because his creatures have disobeyed and they've sown death into their lives. If God stomps them, he's no longer righteous, whole, righteous, gracious, compassionate, and kind. But if God ignores this, he's no longer just and righteous and holy. So what's he to do? Well, he comes up with this amazing plan. So here you are, here I am. Ephesians says we are turning into objects of wrath. God has to stop us. There has to be consequences for our sin, for our disobedience. So God's wrath will be revealed against ungodliness. And he was pierced through for your transgressions. He was bruised for iniquities. And the punishment that should have fallen on you fell on him, and by his stripes you are healed. This is why Christianity is so exclusive. Because this is the only way for life to be restored, right, inside of us, for the Zoe life that's died to be restored. By Jesus covering us over from the wrath of God and saving us, right, through his blood. Shining the cross. Romans 5 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, powerless to fix our sin, powerless to re- reverse our disobedience, powerless to restore ourselves to life, powerless to make our world a better place, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John Piper says it this way. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. It's a brilliant plan. This Jesus, Right? Now, years ago, I saw Louis Giglio do a thing. I'm going to close with this today. I don't know if I can do as well as him, but he took Tupperware, and he's told the gospel story through Tupperware using the book of Colossians. So here you are, right? This is you and me. It's Tupperware. Colossians says this about us. Once we were alienated from God and were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. So in other words, sin was in us. Right? So here we are, sin living in us. And then it says, we were delivered to the dominion of darkness. So, 
where we were captured like the Narnian person and put inside of Satan's dominion of darkness. This was all the human race. The enemy had won. Filled with sin and death and enslaved in the dominion of darkness. But look what this verse says here. You were rescued from the dominion of darkness. So God took you out. And then it says, when you were dead in your sins and transgressions, he made you alive with Christ. So he pulled this out. And in Colossians 1.27 it says, this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then it says, he delivered you to the kingdom of the Son he loves. So in Jesus, this is you. And then it says in Colossians 3, this great line, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So picture your father now holding you, hiding you inside of himself. Right? Having been saved and made alive in Christ. This is the gospel. Right? This is the only way back to life that is really life. If you're here this morning and you don't know this, you've never taken this Jesus in, I would love to hang out with you after the service. Actually, any of these folks here who go here could explain it to you how it works. We'd love to help you take this Jesus in because once he comes back in, you come alive again. The death that was sown in you when the enemy decided to make you disobedient to your father is now resurrected to life. And this new life of God is blown into your life again. And that is the only way that your world will become a better place. The only way. Through this Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, the gift you gave us is amazing. The fact that you willingly sacrificed yourself and took on our punishment so that we could have life. Thank you, Jesus. We pray that you would help us to once again, as we come to your table, take you in and live according to your power again. In your name we pray.